The following content is brought to you as part of our Equip Study Series at Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County. In this six-week study, we will be looking at how Jesus prayed, how He taught us to pray, and put it into action as we pray together weekly. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. Tonight we want to look at the book of Acts. And, you know, we've been studying Luke, and, and obviously the same Luke wrote Acts who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Um, and it's kind of a two-part, two-part book. And so it shouldn't surprise us to see continuity in the way prayers talked about between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And indeed, that's just what we find. In fact, I, I know I mentioned to you guys on week one that Luke emphasizes Jesus's prayers and his teachings on prayers more than any other gospel writer, more than Matthew, Mark, or John. Luke was very attuned to Jesus's habits of prayer and his teachings on prayer. And similarly, Acts has references to prayer all the way through it. And so what we want to look at tonight is how, how does the church pray? And is there anything specifically that we can learn um, by studying the book of Acts? Um, since we are more in line, and we're going to talk about this tonight, um, but we're, we're closer to the same place in history to Acts as we are to what's happening in the Gospels, right? In terms of Jesus has ascended by the time Acts is written. And so the Holy Spirit comes, and so that's the same era that we're living in. Whereas when we look at the Gospels, obviously Jesus is on earth, the Holy Spirit hasn't been given yet. And so, you know, there's things that I think we've got to think about as Bible readers in light of the changes and what's the, the context of those specific books of the Bible. Uh, so before we jump in, um, let me ask the Lord to illuminate our hearts and our minds tonight uh, as we study His Word together. So let's pray together. Lord, we, um, we come to You with eager hearts, eager to learn, Lord, eager to be instructed and to be led, led by Your Spirit, Lord, taught how to pray, taught um, how to live in this world, Lord, for Your glory, how to live in this world on mission. Uh, Lord, that is our desire, and um, Lord, Your Word is where we go for that. And so, Lord, we pray right now that um, you would lead and guide us, that the very spirit that we read about tonight in the Word um, would be the same spirit that fills us in our, in, our, in our hearts and leads us towards faithfulness and confirms our status as your children uh, and emboldens us to, to live faithful lives in a world that is very hostile to your ways and, and your will. Lord, we need you. Um, Lord, we need you 
every single hour, everything we do. And Lord, I just pray right now that you would make us aware of our need so that we would be humble. Lord, that we would recognize that this time is not even our own. Our lives are not our own. Our resources are not our own, but everything belongs to you. And Lord, we ask you to use all of that and however you wish to, to bring your glory to your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so where have we been? We've, we've looked at why it's hard to pray. Uh, so you remember that's what we looked at the very first week, and we looked at two different kind of streams. The first stream is why it's hard for every Christian to pray, right? What we have in common with every person in every era, we are human beings, we have weaknesses, and we are also sinners. And there's a lot of reasons tied to that. But then we also looked at specific issues in our modern world and how our modern world specifically has unique challenges to prayer. And so we, we looked at those two things. And then week two, we examined the praying king and we really focused on Jesus's prayers, but not his teaching on prayers, not even really the content of his prayers, but primarily the habit of his prayers, when he prayed, how prayer played a role in his life. And, and really, we saw how the Holy Spirit uh, often came upon Jesus and ministered to him and led him in, in very specific ways. He received power from the Holy Spirit in response to his prayers. And he clearly had a habit of prayer. And then last week, we looked at his teachings. And we looked at the content of prayer, the manner of prayer, and the purpose of prayer. The content of prayer being the Lord's the Lord's prayer when Jesus when they the, his disciples say Jesus teach us how to pray like John's disciples taught him and Jesus said this is how to pray and then the manner you know Jesus has the two parables where he's really teaching persistence keep on praying don't stop don't let up continue to pray and then the purpose we saw how Luke shows that prayer is linked to the mission of God. We pray for workers for the harvest, and we pray so that we will stay ready, so that we will live with in a position in this world that's in line with the way God wants us to live. So tonight, we transition to the book of Acts. And so this is the question I want to start with tonight. Is everything in the book of Acts normative? For us. And what I mean by normative is, is everything in the book of Acts um, establishing exactly the way we're supposed to live today. So when we read something in the book of Acts, are we supposed to, whatever we find there, are we supposed to go right from the book of Acts, turn around to our lives and say, we are going to do exactly that right here. Is that the way we're supposed to approach the book of Acts. I'm curious what you think about this. Okay. So the you and and you're thinking of the Ananias and Sapphira uh, story where yeah, they get struck down for lying, right? I mean, because they they say that that they gave everything and yet they held some back. So that's not normative. At least 
wouldn't think it is. The communal living. Any other thoughts on this? Because I think this is a real struggle for Christians. I think that we read the Bible and we kind of often compare, like, well, that's not happening in my life. That's not, you know, and then we start struggling. Like, was it supposed to be? Am I doing something wrong? You know, why, why isn't that manifesting itself in my life? It happened in the Bible. It happened in Acts. Speaking in tongues. That's one of the differences. Some would say that is normative today. I don't. I, my goal tonight is not to get into the, what is normative and what's not. My goal is to just say, why wouldn't it be normative? What's different about the book of Acts from our own context? I think this is a really important conversation to have before we study it. What's different? The apostles are alive. Note that's important because the apostles are given authority by Jesus that individuals after the apostles don't possess. It goes from Jesus to the apostles, and then the authority after the apostles no longer rests in individuals, but in the church. That's really important. As soon as apostles die, there's no one on earth who has no individual who has that kind of authority. So that's important. Anything else? Good. Yeah, so there's so acts is a new thing. And often in the history of redemption, when a new thing happens, God accompanies the new thing with signs. So think Jesus coming, right? Jesus comes, and what does Jesus start doing? He begins performing miracles. He has these signs. John counts seven of them. This is because this is a huge point in history. God is doing a new thing in Jesus. Well, you have the same thing happening in Acts. It's the, it's the birth of the church. It's also the initial gift of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, Pentecost is the first time that all of God's people now have the Holy Spirit. And in this new thing that's happening, we see accompanying signs testifying to the authority of this new thing in history that's happening. And so you see that happening in Acts. Right? The apostles are walking around. They're performing miracles. They're healing, just like Jesus did. God is bearing witness to this new stage in history. There's one more big one that I, I'm curious if anybody's thinking of. One more big difference. Yeah. I, yeah, I would say that's not normative for us, but that's normative for every, pretty much all the other Christians in history. So we're, we're the exception. But yeah, that's a good observation. 
Well, here's one, big one. They didn't have a New Testament canon. So think about that too. Like you pick up the Bible and you have God's authoritative word, all of it. At this point in history, they have letters. Letters are being written. They have the living apostles, but they're kind of piecing it together, and their scriptures are still the Old Old Testament scriptures. That's still their scriptures. And so there's a lot of things that you're going to see in Acts that we don't do. How many of you go down to the Jewish synagogue to worship on Saturdays? Good. Don't need to do that. <laughs> because we we have we worship Christ. They're not worshiping Christ, but at this point in history, the, the Jews who are newly Christians, they're still going to the synagogue. They don't know any different, right? And so what what we think is happening is that they would go to the synagogue and they would worship with the Jews and they would uh, participate in all of the the liturgies and and the festivals and all the things the Jews participated in, and then on Sunday they would gather in homes and they would worship Christ specifically, and so you have that that all happening. So I I guess the the reason for this whole intro is just to acknowledge that. We need to think about all of this before we begin trying to apply anything in Acts. And and I would argue that we need to acknowledge, we need to do this no matter what book of the Bible we're reading. We've got to ask the question, where does this book, where, where do we situate it in redemptive history and how does that change the way that we read it and apply it? That's really important. Right, Because if it's a book written before Jesus ever came, then we've got to think about it completely differently. That's a different stage of history. And it's not that God changes, but His revelation is given progressively. And so you get little glimpses at the beginning, and then that becomes more full of a picture as time goes on until we get to Jesus and then the apostles testifying about Jesus, and then it's completed and it's full. And we have the whole picture at that point. And so I would argue that at the point of Acts, we're still dealing with not the full. We're we're still dealing with not the full because we're going to have later books written primarily about how to to run the church, right? Paul, particularly his um, pastoral epistles, Titus and Timothy, uh, and even even 1 John are, are more explicitly for our in terms of contextual similarities for the age that we're living in. So we've got to remember all of that. So with that said, I want us to look at prayer, and I want us to first look at the role of prayer and its relationship to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And so I want to remind you, we looked at this passage last week in Luke 21. You don't have to turn there, I just want to read it. Luke 21, 36, Jesus says, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So this is Jesus telling His apostles, hey, you need to be praying, and you need to be praying persistently so that you can persevere through the hard times that are coming and so that you will stay awake. Okay? So there's that call. And what's really interesting 
is when we get to Acts, it seems like his followers have taken that to heart because that's what they're doing. In fact, the very first thing we see them doing in the book of Acts after Jesus is ascended. So, I mean, imagine Jesus has been resurrected. They've been hanging out with Jesus. Jesus has been teaching them about the kingdom of God, Luke tells us. And then all of a sudden, in their presence, Jesus is, is lifted up, ascended to heaven. Gone. And when, by the time we pick it up in chapter 1, verse 11, they are standing there looking up at Jesus kind of confused, probably scared, and two angels appear. And in verse 11 of chapter 1, they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What kind of, what kind of statement is that? How would you characterize the statement from the angels to Jesus' disciples? Is that a word of encouragement? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's an admonishment, kind of a rebuke, right? Why are you looking up to heaven? You've got business to do here. And so immediately what we find after that, look at what we see in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is where a lot of prayer happened, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, so they go into the capital, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, the upper room, the same one that they had been at with Jesus. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, verse 14, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brother. So you've got all of the apostles minus Judas who betrayed him. You have Jesus's mother and the other women who accompany Jesus, probably Mary and Martha. You have Jesus's brother. So you have Jesus's family. So you have all of Jesus's inner circle in this upper room, the significant place where Jesus had met with his people. And what are they doing? They are obeying Jesus's teaching, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the son of man. Now just imagine being them. How do you think they felt? At this moment in time. Yep. Afraid. And, and I, I, I'm sure that that's right, right? Because Jesus has left them. Jesus was with them. Jesus is gone. They don't know what's next. The one that they look to is gone. Have you ever been in a work environment where like the person in charge just doesn't show up one day and it's just chaos? Maybe school environment where the teacher doesn't show up and you have the substitute. How does that work out? You get a lot done on those days, right? So, so Jesus is the one that they're following. Jesus is gone. They don't know what to do. And I want to remind you, do they have the Holy Spirit at this point? No, 
And so what they do is they go and begin to pray. And they, and they don't only pray for that, but they also, the very next thing they do is they say, okay, Judas, Judas betrayed Jesus. We've got to find a replacement. Why is that important? Why do you think they needed to find a 12th? He did call 12. So look at verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us, uh, or they, right here, I'm sorry, back up. So, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So they're interpreting this from Psalm 69 and also from Psalm 109.8. But I would argue there's also a bigger theological reason. Why were there 12 apostles? Why did Jesus call 12? The 12 tribes of Israel. This represents Jesus' new people. This is, this is what God's doing right now in history. And so look at how they do it. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. There has to be 12 witnesses to his resurrection, 12 apostles. So the criteria, we've got to find a man who was there from the beginning like we were, who was there from the baptism of John and has been a witness and has seen everything that we have seen. And so they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed. So see that? There they are praying again. Verse 24, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Right, right. So they do this. Now, let me ask you this. So why don't we cast lots? Like when you, like, I have uh, a team, Emily and some other people, thinking about when we do the renovations, knock the walls out, like we've got to get new carpet. You know, that can be a real source of division in churches. Really thankful that we don't worry with that kind of thing here. That's, those kind of decisions have never been an issue. Um, but why don't we just draw lots for that? Like, why don't we just say, hey, this, this lot goes with this color, and this is how we're going to decide. Or, time to call a pastor. We've got three candidates. Hey, can y'all show up and just draw a lot, and whoever picks the largest one will be our pastor? They ain't using that here either. So why is it? This is where I'm, what I'm talking about, though. Is everything in the Bible normative? The apostles are doing it. That should make it pretty normative. Y'all know I'm playing devil's advocate. I don't want you drawing lots for everything. Yeah. 
They did do that. Listen, what's about to happen in the very next chapter? The people of God receive the Spirit of God. This is why I don't think this is normative. Because in history, we live in a different epoch now. We live, this happened pre-Holy Spirit. We live post-Holy Spirit. So we believe that the Spirit guides us individually, but more importantly, we believe that the Spirit is with us in a special way when we gather, right? So these decisions that we make as a body, as the body of Christ, have authority. So we don't, we don't do that anymore. But right after that, in chapter 2, Pentecost comes. The Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit comes in the context of prayer. They're in the upper room in Jerusalem. They're praying. They begin to look for a leader. They're praying again. And in that context, the Holy Spirit comes. And I want to remind you, when does Jesus, when does the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus for ministry in his earthly life? It is baptism. And what was Jesus doing right before the Holy Spirit came? We looked at it. He's praying. And so again, you see prayer and the coming of the Spirit being linked. Now my question for you is, okay, does that mean that the Holy Spirit only comes when we pray? Yeah. He... So if we keep reading Acts, we're going to see the Holy Spirit coming in all kinds of contexts. The Holy Spirit comes at some points when people receive baptism, at some points when through the laying on of the apostles' hands, and most normatively um, when repentance and faith take place. So the Holy Spirit moves freely. And remind you of what John says, or what Jesus says in the teachings to Nicodemus that John reports in John chapter 3, the Holy Spirit, he, what does he compare the Holy Spirit to? The wind, and what does the wind do? Blows where it wills. And so that's really important because we are technical people and we like to use things. And if there's power, we want to find a way that we can manage it. We want to put our hands on it. So we say, oh, well, the Holy Spirit brings power. And so we like to come up with this, this kind of technique. Well, if the Holy Spirit brings power, then, then we're going to figure out a way to have access to it. And it's really important when we talk about the Holy Spirit that we remember that you can't use the Holy Spirit. That it's not just like a, a, a gun in your, in your belt that you can pull out whenever you, you need. He is a person. He moves as He wills. The Holy Spirit comes as the wind blows. And so I would argue that prayer does not necessarily bring the Holy Spirit. But I would say this. I think that prayer provides the spiritual environment where the Holy Spirit often shows up. <laughs> when His people are praying, the Spirit delights to come and draw near and fill and work and embolden and act in mighty ways. And I think we see that throughout Acts. Yes, Odell. Right. Yeah. 
That's exactly right. And I mean, we have versions of that today, that same mentality. But I mean, I just want to show you a couple of things. So if you if you look at Acts 4.31, so this comes at the end of persecution and there's been an imprisonment and the, the believers are gathered together and it says in verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. So there's that connection between prayer and the Spirit. I don't think you can say the Holy Spirit always obeys your prayers, but I, there's certainly a connection being made, right? The Holy Spirit delights to come when we pray. He delights to answer that. And then you see it again in 8.15. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for He had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is interesting. Why do the Samaritans believe the gospel, but they have to wait for the apostles to come put hands on them and pray for them before they receive the Holy Spirit when we believe that the Holy Spirit comes in each believer the moment we believe the gospel? Why is there a second stage here? <laughs> do what? It's definitely because the apostles are still alive, and it has, I want you, who are the Samaritans? I'm going to lead you to the answer. I think, my, what I think the answer is. Who are the Samaritans? Gentiles. And what, what are people believing about them at this time? Yeah, they're second rate. So I want you to think about the symbolic significance of the Jewish apostles coming and putting hands on them for them to receive the Holy Spirit. That has theological significance. That's the apostles, the authorities on earth saying these Gentiles are a part of the kingdom too. And so this is why you have to be careful making things in Acts normative because that's not normative. You see, this was a hugely symbolic thing that they did and that God allowed to happen to teach us, to teach them that his kingdom was fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed, right? And so that's what's happening there. For us, what we need to understand is that we receive the Holy Spirit upon believing the gospel. We have two instances where the Holy Spirit comes at a subsequent time in the book of Acts. Here with the Samaritans, we've already explained that. The other one is in Acts 19, the Ephesians received the Holy Spirit through the apostles laying on of hands. But when we read that account very carefully, we realize that they didn't seem to have the full gospel yet until the apostles showed up. So it makes complete sense that they wouldn't receive the Spirit until they believed the true gospel. They're still relying on John's baptism. So what's the difference then between 
the Spirit indwelling you, possessing the Spirit, and being filled with the Spirit. Like, if you have the Spirit, why do you need the Spirit? That's my question. Like, why would you pray for the Spirit if you already have the Spirit? Because that's what's happening. Yeah. So degrees of relationship. Um, the only thing that I would be careful with is that we don't is that we don't think of like, well, I'm a stage. I'm at this stage with the spirit, you know, and, and you're at this stage, you know, because I, I don't think that, you know, we could have like any type of degree of, of spirit relatedness in that sense. But I do think you're right in the sense that the spirit has different levels of influence over our lives, right? Which is what you're getting at. So I think it's really important to distinguish between the Holy Spirit's constant work in the believer, where the Spirit is sanctifying us, indwelling us, uh, testifying to us that we are children of God, reminding us of Christ's words and promises, uh, you know, um, all the things that, that you think of when it comes to just the day-to-day living, often things that we never credit the Spirit with, by the way. Like, the reason you want to do the right things is because of the Holy Spirit. You realize that, don't you? Like, the reason you like worshiping is because of the Holy Spirit. Like, none of that would ever happen if you didn't have the Holy Spirit. Like, that is the supernatural work of God's Spirit in your life. The fact that you're here on Wednesday night studying the Bible and wanting to be here is the Holy Spirit, right? When you do anything like that, that's the Spirit working in you. But there's also a sense in which the Spirit can come in a more profound way. And it's primarily in the book of Acts tied to witnessing. It's tied to mission, where the Spirit can fill us in a very occasional way, for a specific moment where we are being called by God to bear witness in a time, in unique historical circumstances. And in that sense, that influence can come and go. You don't always have that, right? And so that is what we're often praying for. And Acts shows us, as we keep studying it, many practical ways that the Spirit assists us, that what should we pray for and act? So this is, we're going to move quickly, um, primarily because it's hot. Paul, uh, Bob says that it's running now. Okay, so it's an answer to prayer. Because um, I'm dying. All right, so... The first thing that I think we... So let's just look at all the ways prayer works in Acts really quickly. I've got eight points. First, when the church gathers to worship, Acts 2.42. We studied this recently on a Sunday morning, but this is that beautiful passage in Acts where the believers gather and have everything in common. And the first thing we see them doing, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship 
and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The prayers. It's interesting to me that there's a the in front of the prayers. Because what would you expect that to say? To praying. So what does the the prayers indicate? No, it wouldn't be like describing people. It would definitely be describing the prayers. The yeah, it's, that's what we like. I don't know how else to read it. Like at this point in time, they already had prayers that they were praying. You see, like in our free church evangelical tradition, we kind of have this idea that like if it's not spontaneous. If it's not just stream of consciousness, then it's somehow inauthentic. And yet, from the very beginning, the church had specific prayers that they would pray. What do you think Psalms is? The Psalms are the prayers of God's people. They would pray these specific prayers. Jesus, the Lord's prayer, is a specific prayer for us to pray. There is nothing wrong. In fact, it is completely right and good for you to have prayers from the history of the church that we continue to pray today. Prayers from the Bible. That's good. That's a good thing. They're doing it right here. All right, so when they gather to worship, they pray. Second, when commissioning and sending ministers and missionaries, they pray. So we already saw how they chose Matthias to replace Judas. They're praying. If you look with me at Acts 6.6, 6, do you remember how... This is the beginning of deacon ministry. By the way, we're, remember when we nominated deacons like three years ago and then COVID came, so we never got deacons? Well, we're doing that again Sunday, so be ready. We'll have deacon nomination forms available, and we want all of our members to nominate deacons so that the pastors can take those nominations and uh, make the decisions that we need to make from that. But these, this is where many believe that the deacon ministry began. Right here in Acts 6, what you have going on is you have this time-consuming dispute happening where widows are being neglected. So the church is feeding those who are in need. They're caring for the, the poor. In this context, the, the widows, because think about it, in this context, a widow did not have a provider anymore. And so the church was responsible to make sure that the widows were taken care of, but the apostles had a specific call. And so if, as long as they were spending time, you know, m fixing the disputes happening and making sure that the widows were fed, what were they not doing? They weren't praying and they weren't preaching. <laughs> and in Acts 6, that's exactly what they're, they're called to do in verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so they raise up seven men to serve who will, who will care for the practical needs in the context of the church so that they can minister the Word of God. And I really badly want to tell a joke right now, but I don't know if I should. What do you think, Josh? <laughs> okay, funny story. This is a great context for this. Edit this out from, from the recording. No. Um, 
So in Lexington, we have um, international students who, <laughs> who come, and it's great, right? That's what you want. I mean, it, these are people who have never been in a church, and they're students at the University of Kentucky, uh, many of them from China, many of them from India. We've had many Muslims, and <laughs> you bury in your head. This is a great joke, Dan. <laughs> and so one time... They were in the service, and y'all know Todd Martin. Many of you have met Todd. Todd's a very stand-up guy, right? Um, very, you know, just a, a clean-cut kind of guy. And one of the international students was, was there on a Sunday morning, and the deacons were up doing the Lord's Supper. You know, that's who serves the Lord's Supper on a Sunday morning. And, and so one of the international students said, who are those people? Who are those men? And Todd said, those are the deacons. And, of course, an international student who's never been in church before said, what's that? Like, what's a deacon? And so Todd explained, well, a deacon is someone who, you know, how do you explain what a deacon does? And he says, so they meet kind of practical needs in the church. This was the way Todd put it. They do a lot of the practical needs. And, and, and he, you know, the, the international student looked at him sort of, they still didn't understand what, what practical needs are you talking about? And so Todd said, you know, like ministering to widows and, and, you know, doing the Lord's Supper. And he went and listed some things. And <laughs> this is the part, I don't know if I should, I've already started down the road, Josh. And so, and so <laughs> the, inter, the student looked at Todd and said, practical needs with widows? And thought that by practical needs, he was talking about sex. And Todd said, no, 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 that's not what they do. So there's your story hour for the night. No more. No more of that. Sticking with my notes now. All right. So the deacons are called to serve in this way, and prayer is a huge part of it. And you see that in verse 6. When they are commissioned, um, let me find it, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. This hand laying is an authoritative uh, gesture um, of, of their being set apart for this ministry. Uh, you see this happening again in Acts 13.3. In Acts 13.3, you have Paul and Barnabas. I love this because you want to know how are missionaries sent? Listen, missionaries are not sent by seminaries. Missionaries are not sent by agencies. Missionaries are sent by local churches. And that even applied to Paul and Barnabas. And you see in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are being set apart for the work of ministry, but notice who sets them, who, who sends them off. It's the church at Antioch. There is a local church that they go and submit to. And in verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So there you see them being set apart for this ministry. And then one other time in 1423, we see something very similar to this. This is Paul and Barnabas, so they're out on the mission field now, and so they're meeting with churches and they're gathering churches, but what do you need in a church? You need elders in a church, right? And so Paul and Barnabas are going to appoint elders or pastors, and in verse 23, 
And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So leadership in the church, leadership on the mission field, the setting apart of missionaries and ministers should be only only brought about through much prayer and fasting. And that's what you see happening here. Third, we pray, we see that prayer was the special obligation of the 12 apostles along with preaching. That was my third thing. We'd already seen that in 6.4. So they, they preach and they pray. Fourth, we see that they pray for boldness to preach the truth in the face of persecution and hardship and deliverance. I'm not going to look at all of these, but I do want to look at one of them in 4.23 because you get the content of the prayer here. This is unique in Acts. You don't get a lot of prayers spelled out, but you get it here. So when they were released, they went to their friends, this is verse 23 of chapter 4, and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the prophets of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I would argue that this is that special anointing to, to equip them for ministry and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. They pray for boldness. The Spirit comes in a new powerful way fills them, grants them boldness, and sends them out to proclaim the gospel, the mission that God has given them. You see this again and again. You see it in Acts 7.59. You see it with Peter in Acts 12.5 and 12. You see it in Acts 16.25. All of those are in the context of persecution and boldness to preach. We pray when we need the boldness that only the Spirit can give us to speak the truth. You see them praying for the Spirit. Fifth, when healing or performing miracles. So, for example, in Acts 9.40, as well as in Acts 28.8, but in Acts 9.40 is the one we'll look at. This is where Dorcas falls asleep and falls out of the window because Peter's sermon must not have interested him very much. Sometimes I think this is going to happen on here on Sunday morning. People are going to fall right out into the floor. But notice, Peter put them all outside, verse 40, and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened 
per, I always thought Dorcas was a dude, but now I see what's happening here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just got confused when I said she, and I messed up. So, and she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. So, Peter prays as he heals her, and through that, God answers. So they pray for healing as well as the performance of other miracles. They pray to receive revelation in 9-11 and 10-4. I'm not going to look at those. Um, they pray when wanting sinners to repent and believe. Clearly, this is in Acts 26-29. Um, they also pray to express repentance and belief in Acts 8-22. And then eighth, they pray when, oh, I love this. I have to look at these. They pray when experiencing difficult human emotions. And I want you to see this. Acts 20, 36. This is Paul leaving Ephesus. And he loves these people. And he's leaving them. And, and you know, Paul at this point is getting in, in his mind that he's probably never going to see these people again. And in, in 2036, he gives them this, this farewell address, and it says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. And then the very next day in 21.5, that they pray with him again. And Luke's joined, when our days there were ended, uh, we departed and went on our journey, and they all with wives and children accompanied, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So these goodbyes, which are very difficult, are accompanied by prayer. So how do we go through difficult emotions? How do we go through difficult circumstances? What's through prayer? So what are the conclusions? Here, here are some of the conclusions. Just based on everything we see and what we just reviewed, just like Jesus, the church prays at all the most important, decisive moments of their lives. They're praying before they go out. They're praying before they receive the Holy Spirit. They're praying to raise up people. They're praying when they make decisions about leaders. They're praying when they send missionaries out. They're praying when they gather to worship. All of these significant moments are full of prayer. They're praying when they say goodbye to one another. Just like Jesus. Remember, that's exactly what we saw when we looked at Jesus' prayer habits. What's he doing? At his baptism, he's praying. At the transfiguration, he's praying. Before the cross, he's praying. All of these moments, Jesus is praying. Second, prayer is specifically connected to the fulfillment of the church's mission. And that makes sense. Because when we participate in missions and evangelism, we are being asked to participate in something that we have no control over. You can't make a single person believe. If I could make people believe, I'd go down that children's wing right now and every one of those children would be saved. Right? You go knocking on doors every day. If you could just make them believe, if you could have a formula that always worked, 
You'd be crazy if you weren't just all the time. That's all you need to do. You can save everybody in the world if you could have control over it. We don't have control over it. We need the Spirit. The Spirit must be present in giving us the words to speak, and the Spirit must be present to make a dead heart live. And so we pray. And on top of that, we need the Spirit because we, we face opposition. The world hated Jesus. The world will hate us. As the world hated Jesus, we should expect the world to hate us. And so in that context, we need supernatural help and we need the boldness to remain faithful and not compromise. Third, in this life, and I will just, this, is, this should be very obvious to us, in this life, you are going to face many decisions that you don't have a clear answer about. Should I take this job? Should I move into this house? Should I take this promotion? Right? Should, should, I, should I date this person? Marry this person? Should, should we adopt this sibling group? Should we, I mean, on and on and on and on and on. We're making decisions. And you know what? God doesn't give you special revelation for those decisions, does He? I mean, not one of us receives special revelation from God every time a decision comes. Sometimes we talk like we do, which I think is very dangerous, by the way. We walk around all the time saying, well, God told me. And I just I always want to say, well, how did he tell you? you know, did, he, did he show up and speak? Did he write a message on your mirror? That's not the way it works. God wants us to trust him day by day. He doesn't often just come down and tell us what we're supposed to do. You better believe that we need to be praying. The book of Acts shows us the apostles struggling with the same things. There's a point in which Paul is struggling over whether he should go to a, to a city or not. And he has a disagreement with some of the other apostles about it. This is the apostles disagreeing. The apostles disagree about a few things in the book of Acts. They end up having to have a council at one point. How do you get through the messiness of the decisions that you have to make if you're not praying? So we pray when these decisions come. And then we, we must establish the habit of prayer, obviously, when we gather to worship as the church. So then the, the last thing I would say practically is that due, due to the proximity of prayer and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Remember we talked about how when prayer's there, the Holy Spirit's there so often that you see those two things together. We can conclude that prayer plays a major role in putting us in a position to receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit and to be led by the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I don't know about you, but I want to be ruled by the Holy Spirit. Because I know what it's like to be ruled by the unholy Casey. Right? I want to be ruled by the Spirit. I want the fruits of the Spirit. I want to be the means through which the Spirit converts other people. And so how do you put yourself in that position? Well, according to the book of Acts, through prayer. So let's pray.